This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised. In previous episodes, we have covered Jack's abuse of multiple young boys, including Heath Stocks. We've also covered the events leading up to the night of the Stocks family murders. In this episode, Jack's reign of terror is finally exposed in the most shocking way. These events take place in the summer of 1997, just seven months after the deaths of Joe, Barbara, and Heather, and only one month after Heath is sentenced to life without parole. We will be hearing from Charles Peckett and Mark Buffalo. We reached out to Karen Knox, but she declined to be interviewed. We've discussed the stories of multiple victims of Jack, but one we haven't talked about yet is the Aukas family. The following information was taken directly from the official statements given to police. So Terry and Vicki Aukas moved to Lone Oak in 1991 with their three sons. They moved right onto the street where Jack Walls lived with his family. In the beginning, Jack was a good neighbor to them. He would buy Josh, their oldest son, different things like camouflage clothes and knives and ammo. And he would say that Josh could work them off at the farm. It's very similar to the methods that he used with the other boys. It's almost like he made them indebted to him. You can work this off. Right away, he is starting to weasel his way in, just like he has with so many other families. And again, the family thinks he's great. Jack's here helping us out, buying my son's stuff, taking him under his wing, and it all just feels so normal to them. So during Josh's seventh grade year, His parents notice that he becomes more aggressive and negative. Looking back, Vicki remembers that Josh had spent a majority of the summer following sixth grade with Jack. And like we talked about Heath in episode five, Josh becomes disinterested with Scouts and he wants to quit. But his parents push him to finish his last project to get that level of Eagle Scout. So on July 20th, 1997, Vicki ends up finding a bag of weed in Josh's belongings, and she confronts him about it. And she says, you know, you're so close to finishing your last project to become an Eagle Scout, and Jack has been helping you. And in response, Josh says, let me tell you something about the Walls family. And he comes clean about the abuse from Jack, saying that it all started when he was in sixth grade. And he also says that he knows that Jack has been abusing Wade Knox as well. Which, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, Wade lived right next door to Jack. So they're all living on the same street, very close to each other. Another interesting point of that dynamic of Josh's family is he had two younger brothers. In in a previous interview that he had done, he mentioned that he saw Jack buying his younger brother camouflage pants. He saw him buy the knives. And he knew that Jack was setting himself up to start abusing his younger brother, too. And he didn't want that to happen. He was looking out for his younger brother. He didn't want the cycle of abuse to start over. And you can kind of see that with the different boys, whereas we had Wade, who looked out for the young boy who Jack wanted him to bring into his group. You have Josh now looking out for his younger brother. So it seems in a way that the boys are, they're growing up. While they still are under Jack's control, they're starting to see that they have to protect the next generation. They still have that one area of their life that they control, and it's to not let it happen to anyone else. 
So after hearing that, the Aukuses make arrangements for Josh to go see a therapist, and they decide not to say anything about the abuse to anybody because the following week, one of Jack's daughters is getting married. Not to judge anybody in the decisions that they made, but that's your child, and you just found out they had been being sexually abused. Jack's daughter's life is obviously going to be changed whether you wait a week or not. I feel like Every time we're reading these different statements and stuff like that, I always put myself into the parents' shoes, the parents' position to kind of see what they might have felt like or been feeling when they made these decisions. And the only thing I can think when I'm reading this is I would have immediately went straight to law enforcement. And like you said, I don't want to judge and I can't, obviously I can't put myself completely in their shoes because... Because was, Jack did have control over them, too, in a way. Right, exactly. And it was a different time, and all of these things come into play. But it's just so hard to wrap your mind around. So on July 28th, then, Teriakis goes to Charlie Knox, and he tells Charlie everything that Josh said. And he asks Charlie, can you talk to Wade about it? So the Knoxes confront Wade and ask him, has Jack been abusing you? And... I know we've said it before, but just to mention again that Wade is Jack's nephew. So Wade tells his parents that everything is true and basically backs up Josh's story that they've both been being abused by Uncle Jack for years. And at that point, the Knoxes decide to ask their older son as well if he had been abused by Jack. And their older son's response is, you believe everything that those boys are telling you. So that night then... Charlie and Karen go over to the offices to talk to them. They had only been there a few minutes when the doorbell rings. Wade came out of the house with a out of his house with a gun and went over to Jack's house, which was right next door to his house, and pointed the gun at Jack and told Jack, let's go, because they were gonna go across the street because he had another victim across the street that he was messing with and then that victim had a younger brother. That younger brother, Jack, started buying clothes for little treats and stuff for him at the same time. He was starting his way of getting that person as a victim, too, and Wade saw that, saw what was going on. And Wade said, no, you're going to tell my parents what you've been doing for years and pointed the gun at him and marched him across the street to where he was at to where his parents were at and told him that you are going to tell them what you've been doing for years. And Jack told him. Does, does that surprise you that Jack went with him and told him? I think it doesn't surprise me, especially when he had a gun pointed at him. And if he knew Wade, Wade would have shot him. And that would have been the worst thing that could have happened. I think that that was his way of just saying, all right, it's out, it's out. And I think, too, the fact before that he was caught in bed with Heath. I think that he had that in the back of his mind, too. It's out. They open the door and Wade's standing behind him with a gun pointed at his side. Wade tells Jack to tell them what he had done. And at first, Jack says nothing. So Wade knocked him in the head. Jack had no expression on his face. He was just sweating. Then Jack said he was sorry for what he had done. Charlie took the gun away from Wade and Karen asked Jack why, after all this counseling that they had put Wade through, why our boys? Jack's response is, I like the outdoorsy, rugged type. So then Charlie tells Jack, go home and tell your wife, Pam, who is also Charlie's sister, about the abuse and what he had done. 
But Jack said Pam was leaving to take their daughter to camp. So they all agree to just let him wait and he'll tell her when she returns the following Wednesday. Again, this is so crazy to me. And I don't even know if crazy is the right word, but I just cannot wrap my mind around letting Jack walk out of that house. And knowing what he did to your boys and then saying, yeah, you can wait because, you know, your wife's doing this. You can wait until she comes home next Wednesday. And the only thing I can think of is they're making these decisions with Jack's daughters in mind. Obviously, they're innocent parties. They don't want to mess up their wedding or interfere with their camp plans or whatever the case may be. But like I said, I don't think I would be able to wait. No. And are they really making the decisions with Jack's daughters in mind? Because is Jack doing anything to his daughters? Like, stop it now and don't let them wait another minute. But they do. And he just goes on with life. So on Wednesday, Karen sees Pam get home and she sees Jack pull in right after her. So he's obviously making sure that nobody gets to her before he does. They know that Jack does not follow through and tell her on Wednesday like he said he would. So on Thursday, Charlie decides to call his sister, Pam. He calls her after Jack goes to work and he asks her to come over. And Charlie says that when he tells Pam, she almost passes out. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. But also, it can't be that surprising for her because you have what Jack went through with the Hogan's. You have the multiple boys coming over with Jack fixing them drinks in the kitchen while she's there. He takes them off into the living room and watches movies with them. So I can't think that she is all that surprised. I think the worst part of that is for his daughters, because that had to be absolutely horrific to find out that your dad had been doing that to so many boys in the town. And now their lives are about to be completely turned on their heads. And I've read multiple statements where the daughters have said, I wish somebody would kill him or just kill me. That's a small town. It's not like it's a big city where you can just get lost in crowds and nobody knows your name. Because as we've said before, that name is pretty powerful around there. So now instead of being associated with this powerful family that helped found the town and has been so prestigious for so many years, this is going to be their legacy now. One they can't run away from. So after Pam finds out, obviously Jack knows then that Pam knows. And so he comes home from work immediately and he asks the Knoxes to come over to their house. They go over there and so does Teriakis. They sit around the table and Jack's trying to explain and defend himself. And he says that if he can stay out of prison, he can continue to work so Pam and the girls can keep the house. And Pam ends up asking, how will he be able to support two households if he moves out and her and the girls stay at the house? And Jack's response is that he can live cheap. The families then ask Jack to get counseling and to get a mental evaluation and to leave Lone Oak. Pam says that if this case does go to trial like the Hogan's did back in 1993, that Jack would not have the support that he had during that time and that she would not stand beside him. So after having this conversation, everybody leaves the Walls house thinking that Pam is behind them. However, the next day, Pam says that she's decided to stay with Jack and that they would all leave Lone Oak. I picture that in my head. The family sitting around talking about it and discussing it. And if you go get counseling, then we won't say anything. Again, that is absolutely 
crazy that you could find out that a man has been molesting not just your children, but other people's children. And you know, it doesn't stop there. So why just let him go get counseling and not turn him in? Then they're just going to move into another town and the cycle will continue outside of Lone Oak with countless other boys. I just feel like at this point, it's almost a responsibility to put an end to it. You know what's happening. There's only one answer. I was also just thinking about that night after the Knoxes and Terry Aukis leave the house and Pam is just in the house with Jack. I would imagine that Jack manipulated her into changing her mind and staying with him. Everything that I've read and heard about Jack Walls, he was a master manipulator and he could twist anybody or any situation to his benefit. So in this situation, he wanted Pam to stay with him. And like we've mentioned, Pam obviously knew this has been going on. Because if your husband has charges brought against him four years ago for trying to molest a boy, and then, you know, their boys are over there all the time, he's fixing them drinks, she has to suspect. And I'm sure that was probably the root of Jack's manipulation and persuasion to her, saying... They're going to know that you knew all along, or they're going to suspect that you knew all along. This is going to look bad on you, too. All of our life that we've built, it's all going to go away, and it's going to affect their children, her children. That is a really good point because he did that with the boys. If people find out, they're going to think this of you. So he always makes it an us against them situation. And I'm sure he did that with Pam. Just thinking about that, it's easy to kind of place blame on Pam as well. But in a sense, if you look at it that way, she was one of his victims as well, emotionally, at least mentally. I just always go back to the daughters, too. That had to be horrific for them because they go to school around there. One of the daughters was dating Josh Aukus. So that is your boyfriend. And your dad does that to your boyfriend? All of these boys, their age that they go to school with and their dad is sexually abusing them. It would be really hard to show your face in that town at all. So after all of this, waiting for Jack to do the right thing and tell his wife about what has been happening and watching nothing happen, the families decide that they're going to finally take matters into their own hands and report the abuse to law enforcement. And at this time, Charles Peckett has just moved to Lone Oak. Can you tell me what your life was like before you came to Lone Oak County? Life was good. I retired from North Little Rock. I was a lieutenant in internal affairs. It was good. I wanted to go to Lone Oak when I applied to have a nice, easy job for the rest of my career. And uh, I got surprised once I got there. So what were your initial couple weeks like as the chief police of Lone Oak? Well, I, I, it seems like it was nine days after I was there is when the uh, Jack Walls case opened up. It was a short time after I had arrived there. I thought it was kind of funny because when I got there, I couldn't get into my office because somebody else had the key to my office. And I finally got the key to my office, went in there and sat down at my desk and thought, okay, this is nice. It didn't take very very many days after that that the Jack Walls case came up. So who first told you about the crimes of Jack Walls and how did that come about? We'd received information, I think it was from the Department of Human Services on uh, Jack Wall's case. We heard that he stocks was a victim and that it needed to be investigated, that it would go farther than that. 
What was your reaction to this information? I mean, it's quite different than you expected, I'm sure. Well, when I found out who was involved in this, I knew that it would be a problem because Jack Wall's dad was a circuit court judge. He was from a prominent family, and he was a gun repairman, and he would fix people's guns. So a lot of people knew him, and they were friends with him. He befriended a lot of people in town. When you said you knew it was going to be a problem, did you think that it was going to, you were going to get pushback? Like, what do you mean problem? Politics. I was afraid that politics was going to get involved in it. I did not want politics to be involved in it. didn't want anybody to get their two cents into it. We needed to do an investigation on just like we did for anybody else. So I was afraid of the politics that would be involved. And Charles Peckett is somebody that's come in from the outside. So he sees the Walls family dynamic and the level of respect that they have in the town. He sees the name and the judge and it doesn't faze him at all because he knows that he has to investigate this. But he also knows that it's going to come with a lot of problems because of that family name. When the investigation started, there were multiple victims of Jack's that gave statements to the police. And one of those victims was Wade Knox. And we are going to read this statement that he gave to police. It says, On Monday, August 18th, 1997, this investigator traveled to the Lone Oak Police Department in Lone Oak, Arkansas, and interviewed alleged sexual abuse victim Wade Knox. During that interview with Wade, He made allegations of sexual molestation against his maternal uncle and neighbor, Charles A. Walls III, also known as Jack Walls. The allegations included masturbation and oral sex by Jack Walls. It occurred as many as 100 times and at three separate locations. The locations were Knox's home on Hamburg Street, the Walls Farm in Lone Oak County, and at the home of Jack Walls. About three to four years ago, Knox went with Walls to the home of Larry Roberts, and he witnessed Walls dump poison around a tree and dump pink paint on Robert's house and vehicles. Walls was mad at Roberts because Roberts had testified against him in a trial concerning Doug Hogan. Walls told Knox that if he ever told anyone that he would look like that tree, dead. Walls also went to Heath Stocks and asked Heath to beat Doug Hogan up, but Heath refused. Then Walls told Knox that he wanted Cletus Hogan, Doug's father, killed. And he talked about how if he killed him, the cops would come straight to his house. Walls talked to Knox and described having Cletus come over to work on a satellite or a computer and stun him with a stun gun. Then he could set Cletus in his car, pour gas on the car, and burn it up. Walls called the group of kids that he did things to the club. This next statement was given by Charlie Knox, who was Wade's father. It states, On Monday, July 28, 1997, Terry Aukis came to my office and told me that his son Josh Aukis had been molested by my brother-in-law, Jack Walls. Terry asked me to ask my son Wade about it. I asked Wade about it that night, and he told me it was true. We were just numb about it. My wife Karen and I went over to Terry's house to talk about it. We had not been there but just a few minutes when the doorbell rang. It was Jack Walls at the door, and Wade marched Jack right inside the house because he had a gun pointed at Jack's side. I took the gun from Wade, and Vicki, Terry's wife, put the clip in her pocket. Jack said that enough people in his family had been hurt. Wade told Jack to tell everyone how he had fucked up his life. We had been talking about the molestation of children when Jack said that it was true. But Jack never directly stated that he had molested children. He just said that everything Wade said was true. Karen asked him why, 
and Jack said that he couldn't explain it or how he felt. I told him that I wanted him to go home and tell my sister and his wife Pam about it. I was outvoted because Pam was leaving and taking their daughter to camp. Pam was going to return on Wednesday. Jack agreed to tell Pam then. On Wednesday afternoon, our pastor, Jimmy Wallace, called me. He said that he had called Pam, but Jack would not let her talk to him alone. Jack had monitored the entire call, so he had to talk about something else. On Thursday morning, Jack left for work, and I called Pam. Pam came over to my house, and I told her everything that we knew. She said she hoped that he killed himself. Pam got sick and almost passed out. She also said that she didn't care if Jack killed her or not. After Pam left our house, Jack immediately came home from work. It wasn't long until Jack called me and asked me to come over to his house. Karen and I went over to Jack and Pam's house, which is right next door to our house. Terry Aukus also came over, but Vicky was not with him. We sat around the kitchen table. Jack said, If I can stay out of prison, I can keep my job, and Pam can stay in the house. Pam said that she would not support him during the trial and that he would not have the support that he had before in the first trial. Pam said that their life as a family was over. We asked Jack to get counseling, get a mental evaluation, and to leave Lone Oak for good. Pam asked how they would be able to care for two households, and Jack said that he could live cheap. We left, and Terry stayed there for a little while. We thought that Pam was behind us, but the next day, Jack was still there. Our pastor told us that Pam had a change of thought and was changing her mind. Brother Jimmy told us that he had talked to Jack on Friday morning and that Jack admitted to molesting our boys. Later, I talked to Pam and I asked her to check with her daughter Sarah to see if anything had happened to her. Sarah came over to our house and said, why don't you just kill him and me? I hugged her and tried to explain that it was out of our hands. We tried to talk to Pam again, but she told us to just go to the police and sign the goddamn papers. We reported it to Lone Oak Police on Friday, the 1st of August, I have so many thoughts about those two statements. The first thing that pops into my head was another preacher knows about it and doesn't say a word. He's just trying to manage the situation, it sounds. And while, yes, he's trying to talk to Pam when Jack's not around because Jack's monitoring the calls, it just makes me wonder why doesn't any adult just go to the police at this point? All of these arrangements that are being made are only benefiting Jack. Nothing is being done with Josh and Wade in mind. It seems like everything has always been done to benefit Jack. And like you said, another preacher, and they are mandatory reporters. Regardless of what the family's request is for them to keep quiet and not report it, they have an obligation to report it. And we know the kids are scared of Jack with all the the threats and the guns and everything that he had. But it also seems like the parents are scared of Jack because if they have to wait for him to leave to go to work and the preacher's trying to get Pam to talk to him without Jack listening in on the calls, why is everyone so scared of Jack? And the fact that the pastor has called and has Pam on the phone and is trying to talk to her and he can tell that Jack is monitoring the calls and so he just decides to talk about something else. That is so creepy. Everybody seems to be going out of their way to appease Jack instead of just doing what needs to be done and getting Jack off of the streets of Lone Oak. That all goes back to who his dad is and who the family is. Because we've seen throughout these boys' lives 
the fear and terror and control he has over this town. And then when it comes down to it and the parents know what he's been doing, he still has that control. They're still scared of him. And if you look at pictures of Jack, he doesn't look like a scary guy. He does look like your average scout leader. Glasses, a scout uniform. Heath had said Jack always wore his glasses and they'd come down a little bit on his nose and he would look over his glasses at the boys and like roll his eyes about things the adults were saying and he was just cool Uncle Jack. So that just really paints a picture of how he went in in so many ways to get the boys, to get their parents, to get the entire town. I will say that when I look at pictures of Jack, knowing what I know, he is so creepy looking. It's disgusting. Every single picture is the same smug expression. That's what I was just thinking, smug. He is so smug in every mugshot. He's even smug in the videos that we see when he's arrested. I don't think I've ever seen somebody that's more smug in every picture that I've seen of them. It reminds me of what Mark Buffalo said when he was there as they were bringing Jack in. I had no inkling that anything was going down until I got a phone call from Chief Charles Peckett, who I had done a story a little prior to that of him getting hired to be the Lone Police Chief. He had called me and said, you need to come up here. Something's fixing to go down. From what I can remember, he really didn't tell me a whole lot over the phone, but just wanted me to, us to, to be up there, that somebody was going to be coming in for, for something that had happened. What was your impression of Chief Peckett? Absolutely loved the man. He is somebody that came in, was an outsider, and didn't necessarily worry about who was who within the town and didn't necessarily worry about ruffling feathers uh, when it came to the name brand people of the community. It didn't necessarily surprise me. He was able to, you know, investigate this after the, you know, he got wind of it and, uh, and was able to make an arrest. You mentioned something just now about, you know, him being from out of town and, you know, not worrying about who was who. Do you think that was a thing that, you know, being a close-knit town, if he hadn't been from somewhere else, do you think that, that anyone would have uncovered it? It's entirely possible that it could have been continued to be covered up. Now, granted, I know a lot of it blew up when Wade Knox made his move as far as taking Jack over to his family's house and said, tell them what you did to me. If somebody else had been police chief, it's entirely possible we would not be where we're at right now. Do you think that fed over into the legal system of it? Do you think that with Jack's dad being a judge, do you think people were worried about saying anything? I think so. You never want to say anybody's corrupt until it's proven. And I'm not saying one way or the other. But perception can be reality when it comes to situations like that. When Pete Peckett called you and you went up there, what was that like? What happened? When I got there, I think he may have handed me a press release or read what was happening and that Jack was coming up there to uh, turn himself in. I remember taking photos of him with a big zoom lens on film, him walking in toward the, the police station kind of in shock of what was going on, that something like, again, something like this could happen in our community. Do you remember what his demeanor was like? It was almost like cocky arrogance that uh, I'm going to beat this rap. 
just the way he carried himself. It just seemed like that to me personally. What was the general feeling about him around the town? Everybody could not believe that Jack Walls could have really done any of this until other aspects of the investigation started coming out. Just that he did this to his own nephew and that it just started snowballing to where more information got out and it seemed very believable. As Charles Peckett mentioned, he had just arrived in Lone Oak and was looking for a quiet place to retire. And all of a sudden, he is faced with an investigation that was far beyond what he could have imagined. Did you feel like an outsider when you arrived? Yes, I did. I, I was an outsider. A lot of people in town, they know each other. A lot of them are related, so they know each other. And it was uh, I was an outsider as far as uh, I didn't try to get into different groups. I tried to treat everybody the same. So being an outsider, did you have any hesitation investigating a member of one of the town's most influential families? No, I did not. I treated everybody the same. If you violated the law, it didn't make any difference who you were. So how did you begin investigating his case? I sent one of my investigators out the first day to start on it. And he went out and talked to Wade Knox and the Wade Knox family and found out what was going on. When he wrote his report and it came back to me, that's when I got involved in it because I felt I had more uh, experience in something like this to, to work this case. I took over the investigation on it. We searched Jack Wall's residence, his locker at his employment, and I think it was his sister's house at the same time, simultaneously. We were looking for anything to do with the, the Boy Scouts or anything to do with camping and any guns that we could possibly find, alcohol, stuff like that that he was supposed to be using when he was taking these boys out. We didn't want to lose evidence. We didn't know if some of it had been moved from one location to another location, and therefore we wanted to get it before it got moved again. What kind of evidence did you find in Jack's home? Books, some, I guess you'd call them X-rated books, uh, porno books. We found photographs. We found, of course, alcohol. We, we found uh, a sleeping bag eventually sent to the crime lab and had it analyzed, which had semen on it. I can't remember what else, what, are the, what, what else we found in there, but pictures, magazines, books, stuff like that. Do you think that any evidence was destroyed once you started your investigation? Yes, I do. By the time that we were able to get the warrants and get over to his house and get to these other locations, we feel that he did destroy evidence. I can't say that as a positive because I don't know what was destroyed, but some of the stuff that the kids had told us that were there and some of the pictures that we couldn't find where he was supposed to have kept them, they weren't there at that location. He immediately has to go into complete overdrive mode and start interviewing people, start talking to these boys, trying to find out how many boys, who all he needs to talk to. It's just an endless amount of names that keep coming up. And when we look through this stuff, too, even today, when I was looking through more documents, there's even more boys' names that come up each time. And I did want to mention, too, that we've had multiple victims of Jack's reach out to us. They want to remain anonymous, and they've told their stories, and they've told what they went through. And that's just a small portion of the people that were impacted by Jack. 
I would like to add that if there are any of Jack's victims or anyone else with knowledge of the story and would like to talk with us, please feel free to reach out. Peckett is now faced with the task of interviewing all of these victims, boy after boy, over 100. And each of them is just as horrific as the next one. I went around to England, Carlisle, Lono, and even as far as Hot Springs to find various victims. And we spoke to approximately 50 kids. What age ranges? Were they all the same or did it kind of vary? It varied because we had heard that uh, one of them was like about 30 years old. We had talked to the other kids, especially the ones that were in that same age group as Heath and Wade. We wanted to get especially that age group and get those kids in there. So this had been going on for quite some time with Jack. Yes. In your career prior to Lone Oak, had you ever come across anyone with 50 victims? Never. I n never did that. Most cases that I investigated, it was, you know, one or two victims, and that would be about it. It never went to this extent. Jack had such control over the people that he knew and the various families that, that he dealt with that he was able to get away with doing this. So based on the victims you spoke to, about how long had Jack been committing these crimes? I'm going to say, you know, as far as I know, would have been about 15 or 20 years that he'd been involved in this. You know, another thing on that is how in the world can he do that for that long in a small town and get away with that without somebody saying something? But it happened. How do you think that happens? I don't know if people was afraid of the family or, or the kids were afraid of him or what, but they just didn't come forward. Nobody came forward until uh, Wade came forward. And Wade is the one that broke this case open. Just unimaginable what these boys went through and had to live with. And each of the stories starts out very similar with the magazines, with the alcohol. It's like he had his own little manual that he followed for each and every boy. And it worked. Over and over again, it worked. But now Pickett's in town. And he's starting to peel back the layers of this. And he's starting to find out what really happened. And he's not scared by the Walls family name. Although he does have some threats against him, it still doesn't deter him from finding out the truth. Did you ever feel threatened when you were investigating Jack's case? Yes, I did. I received a threat, received a letter in the mail that said that uh, reminded me that I was sitting by a window in my office. I remember it saying, talking about me sitting by a window in my office. And other people were saying that Chief didn't know what he was doing, that there was, there was no way that Walls was going to get convicted of this. All these things that people throw at you and politics and stuff that was becoming involved. Were you shocked by what you found investigating Jack? Yes. Yes, I was shocked. You don't ever want to see something like that, that Jack had done, that he was doing to these kids. And I call them kids. They were all kids. Continually doing it to them, like he stocks. He stocks, he did it to him for 10 years. Jack Walls had a case that had come up earlier, earlier being a few years before this case came up, where he had tried to molest another boy in town. He was found not guilty in that case. And so he had won that time. I figured I was going to get the same thing out of people as this other young man got 
as a result of bringing this other case against Jack Walls because they were going to come after me the same way that they, they, went, they went after this, this young man here and found not guilty. In that particular case, there was people that was threatened, threatened to, uh, to kill them. There was uh, uh, threats against families and all that. You know, his dad was a respected judge in town. Charles Peckett not only had issues with threats from unknown sources, he also seemed to have a similar experience, as Lance and Mac did, with the local attorneys. Did you recommend that Jack held without bond? I did. Why? Because he had a history behind him of threatening people that went after him. And that happened with Carlisle's case. He had a history of going after people, and I didn't want him coming after me. I didn't want him coming after anybody else that I had out there as witnesses. He knew who they would be because the hammer had dropped on him. So did they agree that to your recommendation? They did not. The prosecutor did not recommend no bond on us when he was arrested. Is that odd that they would go against what you recommended? Let me just say this. The prosecutor's office did not cooperate with my investigation whatsoever during the time that I was doing this investigation. I got to the point of documenting everything that I was doing when I dealt with the prosecutor's office so that I could keep up with everything that was going on. I went into the judge's office one day and gave a letter asking that the prosecutor be excused from this case. Not just the prosecutor, but the whole prosecutor's office be excused from this case because he wasn't doing his job, and we needed a different prosecutor to come in and prosecute this case. After the judge read over my letter that I gave to him, he said, do you keep notes like this on everybody? And I said, yes, sir, everybody. And he looked back at me, and he said, okay. I went back to my office, and he called me, and he said he called the prosecutor, and the prosecutor said he was going to excuse himself from the case. I said, well, I believe that when I hear it from the prosecutor. That's who's supposed to be excusing himself. Then it was about five minutes after that, he called me and said that he was going to excuse himself from the case because he had some reason. He gave some reason, but I knew what it was. It was that letter that I had gone over to the judge about. And then a new prosecutor was assigned to the case, and that's the only reason that we got the convictions that we got on it. It has nothing to do with Larry Cook or his, his office. They weren't doing anything at all to get this case prosecuted. Can you give me maybe like an example or something of, of what they were doing that made you want to have him recuse himself? Well, not uh, making a recommendation for no bond. That's one thing. I mean, this is you're supposed to be protecting the citizens of, Lo of Lone Oak going ahead and making a recommendation for no bond, at least to the judge. I mean, on its face, that would have been nice. The Boy Scouts, whether he sent in for the Boy Scouts in order to uh, get the paperwork that I wanted from the Boy Scouts, but he had told me that even if he got anything in from the Boy Scouts, he wasn't going to give it to me. Now, why did he say that? That's what he told me. I had evidence in my office sitting in my office, and he walked in. I, said, I told him, I said, we're going to send this evidence to the crime lab, get them fingerprinted, and get the, we had a sleeping bag, and we we're going to get the sleeping bag analyzed from, for DNA. And he said, what are you going to do that for? He didn't care. I called the prosecutor and said, Larry, how much are you getting paid to throw this case? I physically called the prosecutor and told him that. 
he wouldn't answer me. Never answered me. If I was a prosecutor, I would have been pissed. But he never answered me, never said a word about it. And I said it to him like two or three times, and he wouldn't answer me. I finally hung up on him and wrote that letter. Have you had anything like that happen before? Never. I've always had a good working relationship with the prosecutor's office. You know, I mean, the prosecutor's office is a key element to the prosecution, and I've never had a problem out of a prosecutor's office like that. But obviously, some other people saw that there was enough evidence that I had presented to show that the prosecutor's office was trying to throw this case or was not doing their job that they had him excuse himself. So jumping back to Larry really quick, Larry Cook, do you know of anything he said to victims' families about you? Yes. That's right. He went to the families one day and told the families that I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't know how to prepare a case file, and that I was playing attorney. I was playing the, an attorney. There wasn't much that he could do about this case, and they called me. The parents of, the, of one of the victims called me and said, what is this? How come the prosecutor came over the house and told us this? And it just pissed me off. That was part of that letter of uh, getting him off the case. I mean, that's when I called Larry Cook and asked him how much he was getting paid for doing this. I said, why are you trying to throw this case? You're trying to throw the case before it ever gets into court. I think he ran up on somebody that was a little bit more vocal than he was used to. Did Larry ever tell you anything specific about why he wasn't going to involve Keith Stocks? Yes. Larry said in his words that if he did anything on Heath Stocks, then Heath would steal the show, and uh, he wasn't going to let that happen. I think that there would have been a lot of bearing on the case, as there is now, but I, I don't think he'd have stole the show. Do you think that that's what Larry meant, or do you think he had other reasons for not wanting to involve him? He didn't want to involve him. As far as Heath being a victim, he did not want to charge him with that charge. He had told me at one point that he would charge on two charges, and that would be it. Do you think that's odd? It, it is odd. If you build a case on something and send it over there to him to get the charges done on it, and he's not going to do it, I mean, that is odd. Had he just gone with them two charges, he may be out of prison by now. We have a copy of that letter that Charles Peckett gave to Judge Hanshaw, and this is what it said. It is dated October 17, 1997, and it is addressed to the Honorable Judge Lance Hanshaw. The Lone Oak Police Department has been investigating a multitude of sexual molestation cases where several victims have identified Charles A. Walls III as a perpetrator. This has been a very difficult investigation because trust and confidence had to be instilled in victims and families that the judicial system works. These citizens have watched politics in our community and have developed a lack of trust where certain people are concerned. Some victims that were first interviewed showed support when Charles A. Walls received the first two charges. The Lone Oak Police Department has not received support, guidance, suggestions, or communication from Larry Cook of the prosecutor's office. On September 25, 1997, Mr. Cook was in my office where he received the lengthy case file. I had some evidence that was to be submitted to the crime laboratory for serology and print analysis. Mr. Cook questioned me as to whether it was wise to send this evidence to the state crime laboratory. 
On October 3, 1997, Larry Cook came to my office and stated that he was only going to pursue three of the charges against Mr. Walls. He did not give any explanation on why he did not seek warrants for two counts of solicitation of capital murder. He stated that he was not going to seek rape charges on behalf of one rape victim because he had a gut feeling that he should not because this victim would steal the spotlight. Out of seven requests for warrants, one victim was eliminated by the statute of limitations, and the other required more investigation to determine an age group and date of offense. On September 25, 1997, a letter recommending no bond was requested because of the seriousness of the offenses and statements of retaliation from Mr. Walls on those that testified against him in a misdemeanor trial. If he was angry enough to solicit murder on someone that brought misdemeanor charges, what is he going to do to someone bringing serious felony charges? On October 5, 1997, Larry Cook discussed this case with two of the families of the victims. He tells one family that I am playing lawyer and does not know anything about how to conduct an investigation. He tells another family that I am not a good investigator and prepared a poor case file. Both of these families have stated to me that they do not have confidence in Larry Cook or the prosecutor's office. He is playing both sides against the middle where he should have an open line of communication working towards the prosecution of this case. On August 19, 1997, a letter was sent to Larry Cook requesting certain documents from the Boy Scouts of America. We did not receive all information requested, and Larry Cook refuses to furnish me a copy of the subpoena or the letter. He said he made a second request for documents, not furnished, but he says that I cannot have any requesting documentation. This is only one example of the lack of cooperation or interest in this case from the prosecutor's office. I will give others upon request. Judge Hanshaw, I respect the position of the prosecuting attorney and have worked with attorneys for 21 years without many problems. I receive phone calls daily from citizens, families, and victims as to why these other charges have not been filed. They have asked that Larry Cook and his office cease from having any further involvement in this case. It is with the deepest regret that I must agree and respectfully ask that Larry Cook and members of his office be removed from this case and a special prosecutor should be appointed. There is an appearance of conflict, including a $300 campaign contribution from Hubert Alexander to Larry Cook when he ran for prosecuting attorney. Thank you for your consideration. Respectfully submitted, Charles F. Peckett, Chief of Police. So Peckett has a lot of different run-ins with Larry Cook, and Larry Cook is not easy to work with. Similar to the situation with Heath's case, the prosecutor does not seem to really want to work with Peckett. And Peckett is not an outsider anymore. I mean, technically he is because he came from the outside, but he, he lives there. He's their police chief. Now work with him. And they don't. They still fight it because of who Jack Walls is. So as a result, Larry ends up finally recusing himself from the case and cites his ongoing professional relationship with Judge Walls as the reason. In the next episode, we will find out what happens when Betty Dickey replaces Larry Cook. Will the victim's family finally get their day in court? Or will Jack's control of the town continue? Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. 
archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.